Hey, Kelly. Hi, Gina. Can I tell you something? What? I, every week, have to record the intro to the podcast, you know, where I'm like, welcome back, About South fans. Mm-hmm. I hate doing that. <laughs> it is the bane of my existence. Why? I don't know. It's the worst. Mm. Like, it's so painful to me. I think it's because I think people, there are two types of people who know me. There are the people who kind of know me, who think I'm like cheerful, energetic person. <laughs> and then there are those of you who know, really know me, who know that I'm actually like kind of snarky and dark and weird. <laughs> okay. Is that all you have to say about that? Well, and then in the intro, do you want to be snarky and you feel like you have to be cheery and optimistic? Yeah, I feel like I have to act like like I'm an About South cheerleader or something. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you want to be snarky. Yeah. And it's hard to put those things together. I also, you hear the train that's going by right now? And then you're not going to be able to use any of this. Well, see, and I have to wait. Like, <laughs> so I start recording. What happens every week is I finally wait till like there's like a witching hour where like trains don't come past. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do the thing. And I'm like, in my office, welcome back about South listeners. And then there's like, or the, an ambulance goes by. Oh. Or my neighbor, who's really nice, starts like playing music really loudly. Yeah, you can get like a timetable for trains, but not for neighbors who happen to be interested in music or ambulances. No, I know. Those are not things that are usually on timetables. <laughs> well, also, this is my way of saying that I don't want to record an intro for this last episode. Uh-huh. That's okay. This I think is, we just did it. This is the intro. Right. Good. Here we go. <laughs> a really exciting season. Yeah, you feel good about it? I feel really fantastic about it. There was nothing, and now there are 16 episodes about the South. That is good. I mean, okay, you know I was saying earlier, like, start a podcast, they said. (laughs) It'll be fun, they said. And I was, like, slumping down in my chair, and I was like, podcasts are so hard. Yeah. It's been really hard. I don't want to lie. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Yeah. You think that it's going to be something you can do in your free time, and then it turns out to be a whole extra job. Yeah, you know, and I kind of, like, I do it at night on the and on the weekends, basically. Mm-hmm. So other people do things for fun. And then I feel like all my friends want to go out on Thursday nights. And I'm like, no, guys, I have to go home and do a podcast. <laughs> and then I stay up late on Thursdays and do the podcast. It also sort of puts you in the lineage of, of uh, tinfoil hat broadcasters. You know, I have this pet project that I'm recording oh. out of my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is what it is. <laughs> I have to go home because I'm so dedicated 
But I am so dedicated. I know. I want people to have their About South on Friday mornings. Yeah, but it's not a tinfoil hat project. No, I don't think it is. No. All right, so what we're going to do today is Kelly and I are going to run down the season, episode by episode, share some outtakes or other clips, some favorite parts, talk to some of our former guests, and um, just kind of like share a little bit of a self-evaluation of other things that we want to talk about. Yeah. All right. So, episode one, The Crayfish Blues. Yes. So, we have solicited a number of um, names. We uh, sent out a call for names for this crayfish that we're going to have. This week, the crayfish is arriving. Right. Crayfish has has been ordered already? No, I'm going to order the crayfish. um, So, I think it will get here on Friday because I know that I have the time to tend to it on Friday. Mm Mm-hmm. So while people are hearing this, I will be transferring, as of yet, unnamed crayfish to his or her new habitat. That is already being prepared. Yes. And we will reveal the name of the blue crayfish at our party at Argosy in East Atlanta Village on December 9th. So... Listeners, if you're hearing this, the crayfish naming contest, we're going to do a little bracket system, will mm-hmm. be underway, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, all right. Let's go through the submissions, and I'm just going to give my kind of initial thoughts on each one. I mean, not to sway. Whatever people name is the name, but, like, I just want I just want to, like, kind of do some quick evaluation. <laughs> So one of our first suggestions was uh, Lady Blue, the okay. person who suggested that, um, wanted to get something close to Billie Holiday references. Um, and then we had Emmy Lou for a girl and Jim Bob for a boy as two separate suggestions. I'm okay with Emmy Lou. I am let Jim Bob. Kind of feels like what we've been trying to like challenge in the podcast so far to me a little bit yeah the gym the gym bobs yeah collectively yeah and then we had um gonzo as a suggestion oh like the blue alien right uh the submitter said blue and nearly one of a kind oh you know because there's like muppets in space where gonzo like tries to go find his people mm-hmm yeah yeah Okay. And, and that's what you did. You went to try to find the blue crayfish people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we had Proteus, a sea god known for his adaptability, can tell the future, but often changes his shape to avoid doing so. All right. <laughs> Hermes, messenger, god of travel and border crossings. The person who submitted this name suggestion also wanted you to know that it was a high-end design company and thought that would resonate Like an particularly. Yeah. Crayfish? Yeah. This is not an Hermes crayfish. <laughs> um, mm, okay. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> um, Meliquates? I can't say that word. I mean, neither can I. Meliquates? Oh, from 100 Years of Solitude. Yeah. 
Oh my God. Okay, I'll learn to let it roll off the tongue because I do love that novel. They suggested Mel for short. Mel. And that works for a boy or a girl. Yeah. Although I'm totally okay with like non-gender conforming names here. Right. I like it. I like it too. Um, and then some other suggestions. Cray Cray. <laughs> Cray Cray's funny. Although there's already a famous blue crayfish on Instagram whose name is Lana Del Cray. Oh. Which I <laughs> love that the name's already taken. Um, Krusty. Mm-mm. I'm not into Spongebob. Is that a Spongebob reference? I think it is. I've never seen Spongebob, so I don't know. Uh, Bob. Bob. Why does everyone <laughs> want this crayfish to be named Bob? I don't know. Okay. Um, Lieutenant Dan. No, because he, he's going to have legs. That's true. Um, and then your Brooke. Oh, um, okay. So two suggestions that we have to uh, also talk about is... My friend Brooke, who is a listener in Oregon, realizes that she references the blue crayfish now all the time in conversation with people who don't listen to the podcast. (laughs) And she just said that one of her friends pointed out that she was maybe a little too obsessed with the idea of the blue crayfish as a metaphor for the world. (laughs) And she called to just suggest that I named the blue crayfish Brooke. Mm -hmm. Now... What this has in common with the episode itself is that Lindsay Eckert, you might remember, a very special guest on that episode, also wants the crayfish to be named Dr. Eckert. Not even Lindsay. Dr. Eckert. (laughs) I mean, I don't know why my friends want the crayfish named after themselves. If this says something about my friends or, like... (laughs) I, I just don't understand. I do like the idea of naming the crayfish doctor whatever. Though. Well, Brooke is also a doctor. So it could be named after her and her last name. But whatever name is chosen, like Dr. Mel, Dr. Well, this gets to the name I'm submitting. <laughs> is it, can I submit my own crayfish name? I think we make the rules, so yes. Okay. So. Um, it will come up again that you know I was a fisheries major at Auburn University. Mm-hmm. And the person who recruited me to Auburn for fisheries was Dr. Grover. Now, you also keep in mind that Grover from Sesame Street is a blue monster. Yeah. A bit akin to Gonzo. Mm-hmm. And... Dr. Grover was really important. I mean, I wouldn't have gone to Auburn if it weren't for Dr. Grover, actually. Right. So we have the Auburn connection, the fisheries connection, the blue connection. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it works. But whatever the listeners, the will of the listeners, I'm okay with. There will be no stuffing the ballot box. No. (laughs) Russia will not interfere in this crayfish election. I can assure you that all will be above board. Yeah. So, Kelly, the other thing about our first episode is everyone who has talked to me about the podcast practically has had one request. Do you know what that request is? 
It has to be something about Lindsay. It is Lindsay Eckert. Yeah. People are in love with Lindsay Eckert. <laughs> she is lovable. Yeah. And her mother is one of our number one fans. Yeah. Who's um, been very supportive and active on the Facebook page. Really excited about everything we post. We love her. No, we do love her. Um, people keep demanding that we have Lindsay Eckert back mm-hmm. for more commentary because her enthusiasm about everything is delightful. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is to plug our party one more time. Guess who will be at our party? Oh, Lindsay. Yes. Oh. So you will be able to, if people are searching for more Lindsay Eckert in their lives, she is one of the guests who will be at the December 9th party. Mm-hmm. 7.30 p.m. Argosy. Nobody's going to come to talk to us. They're just going to come to talk to Lindsay Eckert about crayfish. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. I also think this is a sign that Lindsay should probably switch to Southern Studies. Lindsay Eckert would be great at Southern Studies. Mm-hmm. Mostly because she had an existential crisis about the South in the first episode. <laughs> That's halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> All Southern Studies is is existential crisis. Southern studies is butts. <laughs> I don't know if uh, I agree with you there in terms of the whole field, but I know where you're going with this. I I think butts are big business. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you know that in the second episode with Molly McGeehee, we mentioned a lot of like how the Vampire Diaries. Like the butt transcendence. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually had to trim the butt clips by quite a bit. We have a, un, a lot of unheard butt audio. Do you want to hear some of it now? I would love to hear you guys talking about butts. Okay. I mean, not only... Okay, so there was the bench. Okay, so then we went across the street to uh, what is now Wild Art, an art shop where your son has made beautiful art thank you uh benjamin has made beautiful art in art camp but it was the it was the um set for dr gilbert's office so elena gilbert's deceased father's medical practice and her uncle john does something in there i don't know uncle john but she referenced uncle john several times and so i guess there's a scene where damon Damon's butt has been on the ground in front of this place. He was dragged out. Oh, thank you. For my understanding. You were listening so more his, carefully than I. Well, because I know nothing, so I right. had to pay attention. <laughs> he had been dragged across the threshold, and so uh. some people have laid down there to mm. have their butt... Where his butt was. Yes. So that's the second Damon slash Ian butt spot okay so that, that one may yeah encounter the third would be the thai restaurant a real thai restaurant on the covington square i believe it's thai treasure 
and there is a table with two chairs and Ian Summerhalder's picture over it because that is Ian's favorite restaurant to eat at when he is in Covington and so you too may go and sit there where his butt has been. So that's the third spot. Yes. The fourth was not so much a spot right? as the walk through the cemetery. Yes. So then we go to the Covington Cemetery. And apparently in one scene, which we did, as you will recall, we did Google while we were standing there carefully listening, attentive to, attentively listening to her. Uh, there's a walkway, a grass-laden walkway between two plots that leads into this tree arbor-like area. And there's a scene of Damon in the show walking towards those trees that's very famous. And so she was encouraging us, she was encouraging us to take pictures and she could help place us so that we could then Photoshop ourselves into that image and almost look like we were holding Damon slash Ian's hand. And of course it is of him from the back. And so it is of his butt and would be of yours too if you chose to do that picture, which we did not take that picture. But then she said, some people had even photoshopped themselves grabbing his butt. Yes, she did. And that was to me, so weirdly enough, even though that is not real to photoshop yourself grabbing someone else's backside, that to me felt more of a violation of his butt space than all of these people coming to Covington to rub their backsides where his backside has been. Right. Okay. <laughs> so... um there were five butt spots on this tour. Yeah, that is a lot of butts. It was a lot of butts. I'm still not any closer, though, to understanding why I feel like photoshopping your hand, grabbing someone's butt, is more of a violation of butt space than putting your butt where someone else's butt has been. I think because it's forever and also kind of petty. <laughs> Photoshop butt grabbing is forever. That's a new slogan that De Beers <laughs> should check out in addition to a diamond is forever. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if this has anything that gets us closer to some of the premise of the podcast about is the South real. But to me, it just feels wrong to manipulate the real thing into the fake thing that you could look like you were grabbing someone's butt. Why do you want a Photoshop picture of you <laughs> grabbing a not real person's butt? Yeah. I mean, he is a real person, though. Yeah, that's true. And, I mean, when you, when you called after the tour and you said, oh yeah, there were all of these butts, and it was like some character, and I said, was it Ian Somerhalder? And you were like, yeah, I don't know. And I said, it was, of course it was Ian Summerhalder. I would want to achieve butt transcendence with Ian Summerhalder. Like, that's the only person on the show I could imagine. You know, when I first moved to Atlanta, I was in the Porter. And my best friend from high school was here for work. And someone walked by and she lost her shit. <laughs> and I now kind of remember that it was Ian Summerholder. Because she said a name that to me sounded like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like it just had a lot of syllables. Yeah. And I was like, I have no idea what that is. And she was yeah. like the Vampire Diaries. I was like, yeah, mm -mm, still not not ringing a bell. 
He was like, oh my God. Like, that guy is legit famous. Mm hmm. He was on Lost, too. I never saw it. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm a, ter- a terrible TV scholar, basically. <laughs> I think that's okay. But I propose for the next um, Society for the Southern <laughs> Study of Southern Literature, we put together a panel that's just like hashtag butts. Yeah. I think it'll draw a big crowd. I think. I think you've made, you've convinced me. That's all I care about. <laughs> when I thought I was just the one, I was a little skeptical, but. But now that you see how many butts there were. Yeah. There's even more but audio, but, but, <laughs> but we have to go on. We have to move away from the butts. Yes. Which gets us to episode three, where Scott Heath talks about the booties moving. Oh, Yeah. This was, I loved listening to this episode because it was impossible to listen to it sitting down. Oh, what do you mean? I just, like, I couldn't help but move. I was listening to the episode trying to write, and uh, with all the clips, I, I had to stop and listen to all the songs that he was referencing. Yeah, the music in this episode's really good. Yeah. All under fair use, by the way. Yeah. And we do have this Spotify playlist, too. Oh my god, the playlist is so good. It's really amazing. If you haven't checked out the Spotify playlist, I encourage you to press pause and do that now. (laughs) And the episode is just in the car if you are trying to stay awake and you need something that is both informative and also will get you dancing in your seat. It's a really great episode for that. Yeah. Now, I know that one of your favorite parts of the episode, which a couple of people contacted me about, is when Scott Heath says, New York has offered me nothing. Yeah. People found that to be, one person thought that was a little, like, intentionally too provocative. (laughs) Someone else said that they were initially kind of offended, but then they listened to the rest of what he had to say, and they completely believed it. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have anything to say about this or should we go to the clip? Um, let's go to the clip first. Okay. I am going to go on a limb and say that the Northeast and in particular New York City as a culture, culture consumer and a culture reader has offered me nothing except for a place my favorite artists to gather and work together. Nothing that's not Southern. And I'm going to blow out this Southern a little bit. The U.S. South, the Global South, I think cities like New York are a great place to meet up. Hip-hop for a second. Established in the 70s. Um, three big figureheads. DJ Cool Herc. Clive Campbell from Kingston, Jamaica. Africa Bambada, parents from Barbados and Jamaica. Grandmaster Flash, born in Barbados. All types of Puerto Rican and second generation Puerto Rican B-boys and B-girls. What I'm saying is the people who made hip hop sound and aesthetic are either immigrants or the children of immigrants from the South. And New York says we made hip hop. There's New York and there's the Bronx and all this stuff. Yeah, okay, it happened there, but 
it happened under the influence of and inspired by the histories, the personal histories of people from other places. Yeah, so New York has offered him nothing. How do you feel about this? Yeah, I think it I think it's such a wonderful quote because it is so provocative. And it really sort of sums up a lot of the things that he's weaving together here, you know, when he talks about Beyonce um, and how people are so just sort of blown away by Beyonce's Lemonade and how it can be traced back to Erica Baidu and her Southern Girl and, you know, we're continually sort of like thinking about these new things as really brand new, but if we're sort of tracing them back and keep tracing them back, then we see these like resonances with things that are actually much older. And if you keep tracing them back, you know, they all come to this southern place. And I think that's a really provocative way to put that point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I kind of like this idea of where people meet up. Just because something happened somewhere doesn't mean it's not drawing from all of these other influences. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of influences, we should talk about the next episode, Passaquan. Oh, yeah. Uh, Eddie Martin was influenced by everything he ever saw and sees. Um, It was such a weird day. Yeah. There's a New York connection there, too. Right, because he was in New York. Yeah. I mean, that's what Michael McFaul says Eddie Martin wouldn't be anything without Mm -hmm. New York. Mm -hmm. So the day we went to Pasaquan, you had suggested this episode, and I was initially a bit skeptical. (laughs) Because I just wasn't sure what was going to happen. Right. And it feel like we drove forever (laughs) to get there. And then um, I was looking out the window. You were driving. And I had this... I'm not really a premonition person at all. Mm -hmm. But I had this really strong feeling that... That we were going to not only see a snake, but that, like, we weren't going to pay attention to where we were stepping and we were going to get bit. And I said to you... Yeah, you turned to me and you said, watch out for snakes. And this is not something that I would have ever expected to hear from you. So I, I was a little confused. I didn't know what was going on, why you were telling me to watch out for snakes. I just um, felt like we were going to see a snake. Yeah. So then we get there, and there are snakes everywhere, (laughs) but not real snakes. Yeah. They're all, the tops of the shorter walls are lined with um, stylistic snakes uh, over each of the art arches yeah Yeah. no it's like every single wall has a snake on top of it Mm -hmm. in these like bright colorful patterns and then michael said that saint ohm was a self-professed snake charmer Mm -hmm. and then the snake charming competitions that they had there afterward oh right 
Yeah. So he said that every day they find they find snakes in certain places in the propane shed. They find they find a bunch of snakes. The there. Kiva has a lot of snakes in it. Yeah. And then um, apparently after Saint Ohm died, they um, they had a snake snake charming snake calling. I don't know what the term would be for that. Where you call all the snakes to you? Yeah. I, I don't know what that is either. Casting call? <laughs> Competition. <laughs> to, to determine That's what it's called. Was... It's called... A... <laughs> <laughs> um, but Michael also deadpanned, said that the last winner's name was Gina. Oh, I fell for it totally. Yeah. I was like, what? He and delivered that line so well. I know. I'd have to go back into the outtakes and find that. I don't know if I have it. <laughs> wait, wait, he wasn't recorded saying that, though, No, right? that was right after we turned off Oh, the yeah. yeah. All the good stuff. <laughs> so um, there are a couple of interesting things about this episode. I realize I've said everything has a couple of interesting things, but that's true. First of all, you may remember that... Um, Michael said that St. Ohm thought civilization was going to start again at Passaquan. He wasn't quite sure why he was doing it, except, like, that's where the civilization was going to start over. Now, my mom, who is a popular non-listener to the podcast, <laughs> and only seems to listen when I t say in an episode that she doesn't listen... Like, four weeks later, she'll call me and be like, I listened to where you said I don't listen. <laughs> um, she was here one weekend. It was the opening weekend, grand re reopening of Passaquan on October 22nd. It was also the Auburn-Arkansas football game. And so on one day, we managed to hit both the Passaquan reopening and an Auburn football game. So we go to Buena Vista you're not even allowed to park that day at Passaquan because it was going to be so many people. And Buena Vista, I don't think it's unfair to the town for me to say that it's kind of suffers from an economically depressed, small southern town. It was packed that day. Everyone in Buena Vista was out. Like, it was... I kind of got teary about it a little bit because I was thinking about how maybe Eddie Martin didn't really fit in this town growing up and he did all of this work and he wasn't sure why he was doing it except this prophetic sense that civilization would start again at Passaquan. And then when I saw how much new life the reopening of the site was giving to the town, yeah. I thought, oh my God, like he was right. Just maybe not in the way he expected. Right. Yeah. Every time I think about Passaquan and the place uh, around it, I mean, I'm glad that you had this experience because it is so tragic to think about him living his life in this town that never accepted him, right? <laughs> And so it makes it makes me really happy to think that, you know, now folks are rebuilding, reinvigorating the site and that it is becoming such a place of local pride for this community 
that they are finally sort of accepting him. It, it seems like a symbolic acceptance, right? Yeah, I think it is. Or that, I don't know. I mean, I always do get sad when people appreciate people after they're gone. Mm-hmm. But I do, I, I do appreciate their recognition and that he really, at this point, may single-handedly be saving the town. Yeah. That's something. Yeah. And there's also this, he seems so much this, like, difficult-to-place-in-time character, right? And even Pasaquan sort of plays with that idea, right, of this past-present-future collision that he's building here. And he himself, like, you don't know whether or not he's from the past or from the future. You know, he sees these angels from the future who tell, who give them him this prophecy. So, you know, maybe his life is over, but I think he might be the first to, to sort of, like, embrace that idea of, like, this futurity in which he is, like, living on somehow. There's also a bit of a funny realization I had around this episode, which is we, you know, listeners can submit feedback at aboutsouthpodcast.com. And we got a piece of feedback from someone who, let me see if I can pull this up. Frank Brannon writes, now, his name is important, becomes important later. And it says, I enjoyed the Pasquan episode a great deal, and I'm looking forward to more. It's edifying to hear smart conversation in my own dialect. And may that, I know that that may seem an old notion at this point, but I still need it. And along with the awesome jazz, I feel lighter. And I contemplated for some time that phrase, both in the southern world of the half step between no, the suit didn't work, or yes, it did, but also in the wonderful world of the conditional maybe. Now, I just thought this was like such an amazing note. I love this idea of the conditional maybe. It was the abstract thought I was going for. What I really loved about this message is I'm friends with Frank Brannon. (laughs) But I thought it was odd that Frank, who has my email, didn't just like reach out to me personally, that he went to the trouble to go to the website and like submit the form, right? Right. So I email him back and I say, Frank, exclamation point, because as we've established, I like exclamation points. Thanks so much for these kind words. It means so much coming from you. And then I mentioned, for anyone who doesn't know, Frank is a really gifted um, printer. Like he cast his own type. We should totally do an episode with him. He's recast the syllabary, the Cherokee syllabary type from the 19th century. Um, He just does fantastic work. Mm -hmm. He writes me back, and he's like, oh my god, I thought the voice sounded familiar. That's you? (laughs) Question mark. So Frank, a person who I've worked with, had dinner with or breakfast or whatever. Like someone, I mean, we're not BFF, but I know him. Mm -hmm. Listens, has been listening to the podcast and did not realize he was listening to me. Yeah. This is not... Frank's error, I've realized. (laughs) 
Because I bet you can guess why. Yeah. Uh, because you weren't saying your name. Because I don't say my name in any episode except for like the first one. Mm-hmm. And then after I realized that people I know <laughs> didn't even realize it was me. So I should say my name more. But you know, it's because I hate recording that intro. Mm-hmm. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Is that how I say it? This is Gina Kaysen, by the way. By the way, this is Gina Kaysen. <laughs> Every 15 minutes. Just <laughs> I, should be, I should sit down with the person and be like, hi, I'm Gina Kaysen. Yeah. In case you don't know. This is Gina Kaysen. Mm-hmm. I say your name every episode. Yeah. Never say my own. So in case anyone's confused, I'm Gina Kaysen. <laughs> and this is about South. <laughs> episode we interviewed Monica Miller who talked about ugly women in the south um she went through a whole bunch of ugly women in literature we talked about Dolly Parton we talked about Minnie Pearl Dolly Parton's not ugly though right we she wasn't among the the ugly women I don't think but we did talk about her aesthetic as like a cheap right like tacky tacky yeah yeah it takes a lot of money to look this cheap right right? isn't that what she says yeah yeah exactly um and then we got um some comments on this episode too so i think we're gonna give monica a call and see if she wants to uh respond to some of the comments that we had for this episode and also just sort of catch up with her and see how she's doing yeah and also i mean when i um was reading these comments i thought Oh, man. Like, I can't answer these for Monica. <laughs> like, they're above my pay grade. Especially since I don't get paid to do this at all. <laughs> all right, I'm going to call Monica now. Put her on speaker. Monica? Yeah, hi, Gina. Hi, it's Kelly. We're here together, and um, you're being recorded. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How many people have called you today and said you're being recorded? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's fine. All right. So we had a comment from a listener on your episode, and as I just told the listeners, um, these comments, there's, it's really smart. It's a really interesting critique of everything we talked about. Um But I really felt like it was above my pay grade. So I was calling you, so I'm not putting words in your mouth to answer these questions. Are you ready? Okay. Sure. Okay. I'm going to read this as best as I can. Um, It says, interesting podcast. I'd like to add some Carson McCullers characters to the discussion, specifically Miss Amelia in Ballad of the Sad Cafe and Little Frankie in Member of the Wedding, too. 
It's interesting to me that not once in the podcast was the term, quote, Southern Belle uttered, nor was the term, quote, Georgia Peach, which is often used in reference to pretty Southern girls. Where did the Southern Belle concept originate? Did it exist earlier than the movie version of Gone with the Wind? Lastly, I'm not so sure that Minnie Pearl fits quite so neatly into this discussion. To me, she fits better into a discussion of women comedians who, quote, ugly up in order to be funnier, and that's not exclusive to the South. For example, Phyllis Diller, Lucy Arnaz, Roseanne Barr, Moms, but Moms Mabley is Southern, dot, dot, dot. So I, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, the mini pearl thing, I think because her shtick was so specifically about how she could never get a man. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I think she's applicable to this discussion. And she did quote ugly up um, in this way, but again, because it was so specifically about how uh, uh, boy crazy she was. And in fact, there's even um, the posthumous Johnny Cash album that was released actually has a has a song in which he references Minnie Pearl as a, I don't know if I forget the name of the song, but there's a big reveal at the end that the 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 secret country star he's been having an affair with is Minnie Pearl, and that's supposed to be the big comedic reveal at the end. Um, so it's certainly true that, that you know, uh, comedians like Phyllis Diller certainly do, quote, ugly up. It's a great phrase. Um, but again, I see Minnie Pearl just, again, kind of uh, fitting into this tradition of ugly, ugly Southern women who uh, their ugliness means that they're not, keeps them out of uh, contention for, for marriage. As opposed to, again, as opposed to people like plain, um, plain-faced women who that's a much more appropriate kind of um, visage for marriage. Um, so that's the mini parole response. As far as the McCullers characters um, are, that's a great, um, those are great characters to think about. And I do talk about, um, in the book, I talk about especially um, uh, The Heart of the Lonely Hunter. I talk mm-hmm. about Mick Kelly quite a bit. Um, McCullers' characters are often those who fit more into or talked about in terms of their grotesqueness. Um, and I think Miss Amelia is often talked about in terms of because she's really tall. Um, and um, this, McCullers' characters are often talked about more in terms of their being grotesque. But again, I'm, uh, I think that uh, Mick Kelly is a good example of a character who um, is just kind of the more uh, everyday, less dramatic kind of ugly uh, but certainly McCullers I, I certainly uh, think fits into this tradition there's just so many a finite number of characters I can talk about in the space of of, um, of one podcast um, and then as far as the, uh, the Southern Bell was um, uh, an archetype that was written about especially in the kind of post bellum uh, 19th century plantation novels that were you know kind of the southern bell used to uh to romanticize the old south and certainly the white southern bell um as being kind of archetypal of of the the uh kind of southern representative of the kind of southern society that we that we long for in which we could recuperate and uh and uh reproduce and certainly um the scarlet tradition um, the 20th century novels, you know, along with her, there was also all of those other 30s. You have films being made of the 19th century um, plantation novels as a way of, of 
providing excuses for the kind of race-based violence that that uh, the, the protection of the fragile white Southern Belle was used as a um, excuse for for the the kind of race-based violence that we see, um, uh, especially in the early 20th century in the South, but it's certainly continuing until today. Um, but yeah, the Southern Belle is just another kind of of, of archetypal figure that's used to. Um, typify the kind of retrogressive um, white Southern society that um, my book, I argue that that uh, so many Southern women writers wrote ugly women as a way of saying, of kind of doing two things. First saying, that's, I don't want to be that. And secondly, don't blame it on me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're saying that, that the Klan is, is right, even taking, say, Gone with the Wind, um, the, the Klan goes and, and, and kills those men um, allegedly to protect Scarlet. I think that the ugly tradition that I'm pointing out is women going, A, uh, don't blame me, and B, um, I'd, I'd rather not be on that pedestal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it, it enacts, don't do this violence in my name. Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good answer. I also, um, I was thinking when the person asked about the Southern Belle and Georgia Peaches and stuff. And I, one, we did talk about Real Housewives of Atlanta, which, you know, getting on that show is called Getting Your Peach. Right. <laughs> which is, I'm just going to leave that comment right there. And then, um, well, and too, I mean, Southern, Georgia Peaches are just another way of, of another category of, of, of objectification of, of beauty, um, the same way that um, all sorts of other categorizations of, of objectifying beauty exists. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, Monica, we'll let you get back to your day. We're going to keep recording this episode. And um, will we see you perhaps on December 9th at the party at Argosy in East Atlanta Village? Oh, good. Yay. Okay, we got one more guest. Yes, Mark and I are both planning on being there. Okay, fantastic. We'll see you then. All right, great. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Monica's so smart. Yeah. Her book is coming out. You know, it's going to be out in the uh, fall, maybe, I think. Oh, wow. Or spring. Soon. It's coming out very, very soon. So I'd like to remind our listeners, we'll make sure to um, post on all of our social media accounts Mm -hmm. when that book's out. Did you know that About South has something in common with The Daily Show? <laughs> I did not. We, Leanne Howe has been on The Daily Show and has also been on our podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. She was on the podcast talking about Native mascots, mm-hmm. which comes up has come up a couple of times this season. Um because we didn't talk about it too much on the episode, but even I think the Florida State fans on our football episode were kind of cognizant and aware of even though Florida State pays a dispensation to the Seminole tribe in Florida for the use mm-hmm. of the name, they still maybe do things with that mascot that not a lot of Native people feel great about. Right. And even... Terming something as a mascot, right, 
is in some ways questionable at the outset. Yes, it is. Like, the blue crayfish can be our mascot for the podcast, right? Right. Because it's a little animal. Mm Mm-hmm. Seems a bit dehumanizing with people. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't tell people Kelly Vines is the About South mascot. (laughs) Although Lindsay Eckert wants to dress up like a blue crayfish and be, like, a live-action mascot, I think, for the podcast. Oh, but even then, it's a performance, though. Right. Exactly. It wouldn't be Lindsay Eckert. Lindsay Eckert is not the mascot. Right. The blue crayfish is. And then it becomes even more of a problem when you're reducing an entire group of people to yes, a singular performance. Yes. So I talked to Leanne and Kirsten about this from this uh, interview. Do you want to hear a little bit of that? I would love to hear that. Okay. It's not like you have a choice. <laughs> Like, I just don't get the stubbornness with which people, same thing with the Redskins. Oh, my God. That as soon as Native people start to... (laughs) Bitch about it, they're like, shut down. You know, they're like, we're not talking about it. We'll call 500 people. I don't know who these 500 people were in this poll. (laughs) We will find 500 self-identified Native people and ask them... But the 10,000 people that Adrian Keene and all these other wonderful young Native scholars have assembled, they're like... Not happening. They, it's just... I think I, the funniest the funniest skit on that, I think, was um, uh, the when Jon Stewart was on The Daily Show and they had, they had brought in these self-identified folks and then they brought in Natives. And the to to account for the Redskins and how much these self identifiers love the name, and then the Indians were there and they wouldn't say a word. They were too embarrassed. They said, "I was hoodwinked. I shouldn't be on this show." <laughs> and it's really funny. So you can find it on um, YouTube. Yeah, I, I I I think everybody should take a look at it. Well, let me pitch this to you. You should also look up Trail of Cheers, the Jon Stewart show, um, oh, because they interviewed Leanne Howe about Chief Alinawek at the University of Illinois. Right. And it's such a fantastic episode, and it's so funny, but it's also just so illuminating about that situation and mascotting in general, I think. Yeah, that was, I forgot that that, yeah, I forgot it was on that. But it was, it was, it was fun. You know, they, they did a good job. They know? did. So we're going to post those clips on our website, and we would like to encourage everyone to check out the Twitter hashtag, NotYourMascot, because I think that it will, if you have questions about this mascotting issue, why it's a problem, Mm -hmm. I think it'll illuminate some things for you. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed Leanne Howe's interview, too, because I think she... She's, I think that she is able to sort of talk about this very seriously, but also like in a, in a very humorous way, which is sort of the tone of this episode too. I think it was really, really smart, but yeah. also like very uh, humorous at times. Oh yeah. No, I mean, Kirsten is a really funny person and Leanne Howe, I might even use the phrase comedic genius. Yeah. I think she is one of the funniest people I've had the pleasure of talking to. 
And I think that especially comes out too in the Daily Show clips where you can see her moving through space as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Everyone should go watch this clip. We'll post it. It's going to be under the learn section. You know, um, the n- another really fun episode was Michael Bibler talking about the B-52s. Mm-hmm. And Michael and I spent, you know, there was a little bit of an outtake, us talking about what a good gift giver you are. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a lot of us talking about your gift giving. Oh. Are you nervous? I'm a little nervous. Okay, I'm gonna play this for you, and then we're gonna, I have some follow-up questions. Okay. About your gift giving. Oh no. Okay, ready? I'm ready. All right. John Vine's our co-producer. You know Kelly well. I do know Kelly well. Can we just talk for a minute about how Kelly Vine's is the best gift giver that's ever been? She is. We both have, this is what we learned this morning, we both have the same Gone with the Wind pillbox. I know. I put Altoids in mine. I do too. Or I actually put um, like Tylenol and stuff in there too. Oh, you keep real pills. In <laughs> yeah, no, I just keep those little Altoid smalls. Because also then if I'm at a conference and I have a headache, I can pull my Gone with the Wind pill box out and take my Tylenol so that everybody sees my Gone with the Wind pill box. <laughs> I do it though. I do it but with mints. Right. Yeah. It's good. But yeah, I have a really amazing octopus mug. And she also gave me a very complicated um, Cthulhu card game, which I can't figure out how to play. <laughs> you tried to explain it to me earlier. I have no idea. And I can't. I was like, your explanation, I can't even follow. I don't know what's going on. You, it's too complicated. I'm gonna have to sit down with Kelly and play it. I'm gonna. <laughs> when you said the cards are transparent and they build things, that's where my brain shut off. Yeah. Um, Kelly. So my front porch is very hot. And Kelly was here one day, and she was like, oh, you need a leaf. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And then she pulled up with a car. No. <laughs> and she got this, like, sunshade leaf from Ikea that she knew about existed. And she showed up and was like, I've solved this. Like, basically, if you if Kelly Fine sees a problem or a lack in your life, she can, like, show up the next day with a thing that fixes it. Nice. Which I just, like... I didn't even know I needed this. I know. She shouldn't also shouldn't do that because she's on a super fixed budget as a grad student. I agree. And I'm often like, you don't have to get me things. Right. <laughs> but I think she enjoys the getting of things. Yeah. But she is, yeah. Her, she's like gift giving level. Because she also wraps it. Oh, I know. I thought you were going to say she also raps. Yeah. <laughs> no, she doesn't. I mean, maybe she does, but I don't We made know. her rap at one of their, their exam things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Um, if so, the, the moral here is if you can engender yourself to Kelly Vines, do it. Right. Because she be really... good presence. She really knows everything yeah. about the gifts. But this is not us... Finagling for more presents. No, we don't need it. We're we're all stocked up (laughs) on presents. (laughs) We don't need any more presents. I actually just got her a gift at Faulkner and Yacht and Batafa. Oh. Okay, Kelly. Mike and I have questions about your gift giving. Okay. Is Christmas your favorite holiday (laughs) because of the gifts? I really enjoy Christmas, yeah. How do you know what gifts to get? Oh, I don't know. I just...
That's a really difficult question. Well, also, I mean, when we talk about you wrapping the gifts, you're also the type of person who the gift wrapping <laughs> matches the gift. <laughs> I mean, it really is ninja level. Oh, thanks. I mean, I feel like if you can think about a couple of things that someone really enjoys that they do in their spare time, then you can sort of like triangulate those things and then whatever is in the center of that, that's what the gift is, right? Oh, yeah, okay. So if somebody enjoys sitting on their front porch and then also enjoys like a couple of other things, then you can like, then ta-da, it becomes like a... A thing. Yeah. Also, can you tell me about this rap career? <laughs> I don't have a rap career. There's no, there's no rap career at all. books in Southern Studies is Scott Romine's The Real South. And we were super fortunate to have him. I drove to North Carolina to see my family, but also to interview Scott Romine. Mm -hmm. And we had a good day. And there's a lot of great material that I wasn't able to include. So I'm going to play just a little bit from that now. In 1832, John Pendleton Kennedy publishes Swallow Barn. And already, uh, in what some argue is the first Southern novel, there's this idea that the better South has passed into history, uh, that modernity is standing at the gates, that modernity is threatening what is best and most authentic in the South. Um, certainly the cult of the lost cause in the aftermath of the Civil War reinvigorates this idea that what is authentic, that what is best about the South um, has passed away, is literally gone with the wind. Um, and so this kind of perpetual nostalgia that the South seems to generate, um, this ever-present sense that what was most authentic, most true, best about our culture has, has gone away, um, is a pervasive narrative that the Southerners seem attached to, uh, even as we have progressed in fairly self-evident ways. Um, how many Southerners do you hear say, the things are getting better, uh, that the South today is better than the South uh, of 50 years ago? Now, in some very self-evident ways, that is obviously true. At least it's true to me or, and, and obvious to me. Um, and yet one doesn't hear that kind of sentiment articulated very often. Right. I, I think you would probably you probably hear it more in discourses around the civil rights movement, right. civil rights advancement, but that is maybe one exception to an otherwise idea that we're always losing something. Yeah. I it's interesting because I remember that Clinton Gore's ticket, their original theme song, I think, was Fleetwood Mac's "Don't Stop Thinking About That's Tomorrow," tomorrow. Right. where the refrain is "The best is yet to." 
one of the refrains yeah. is the best is yet to come, right. right? If I'm remembering my Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. That's a really interesting choice mm-hmm. for the Clinton Gore, which was mm-hmm. they build so heavily as a return mm-hmm. both to the Southern Democrat and a progressive South, which is an interesting right. double leap yeah. there. That that song that's so future looking mm-hmm. comes from a candidate that we also thought of as Bubba mm-hmm. and a backwoods. Right you know, kind of average Joe, which yeah. he was far from. Yeah. But uh, that is something I have not, talking yeah. to you has just made me remember yeah. this moment of that campaign. Yeah, yeah. and again, uh, that, at least parts of that configuration go back to the late 19th century where the idea of the New South is generated and Henry Grady is going up to Boston um, and promoting this idea that there was an old South. It was gracious. It was leisurely. It was. It had all of the old-time values, and now we are in a moment of transition where um, we are becoming economically modern. Now, Grady was not progressive at all on racial issues. He believed, like many progressives of his era, that white supremacy was necessary for the South to advance economically. So. Scott Romine dating that Southern nostalgia goes all the way back to what some say is the first Southern novel, Swallow Barn, that even before the Civil War is saying, oh, the South has lost something. What do we do with this idea? Oh, I think it's pretty telling in thinking about the locus of this sort of Southern nostalgia being the Civil War, that if we can continue backwards, right? Um, I don't know. Is the South has the South always been an anachronism, hearkening back to like some period before then? I think so. Always some sort of reminder, a rural space of some like time before that has also already lost something. It's, yeah, it's always already lost. (laughs) I hate the phrase always already. Yeah. But I think it works here. Yeah. So when was the moment, when was the South in its time? (laughs) I have no idea. Part one of our roundup episode. Part two, though, is right behind this. So if you have a long drive or you just can't get enough of us, click on over to the second part of the season wrap episode. If your life was bad, you just the-